Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we have a special guest host and a special guest. WOUB's Emily Vota recently talked with longtime documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. They discussed his new PBS four-hour series on Benjamin Franklin and the complexities of Franklin's life. Burns also disclosed some of his own filmmaking techniques. In an essay that you wrote for Politico last year, you stated that uh, quote, what we recognize in history is a combination of fact and myth, often at war with one another. So I'm curious, what are some of the particular ways you found fact and myth at war with each other in the context of making the uh, Benjamin Franklin series? Well, I think in specifically in the story about Benjamin Franklin, it really comes down to myth is kind of how we'd like to see ourselves or how we'd like to present ourselves. And inevitably, that is reductionist. So Franklin comes to us as a person on the $100 bill, symbolic of of lifting yourself up by the bootstraps and self-sufficiency and all of that sort of stuff. But it neglects the hugely important fact that he never disconnected that individual uh, quest, individual success from civic responsibility, from civic engagement, from civic discourse. And so here you have a man who is able to retire in his 40s due to his wealth and devote himself to scientific uh, uh, inquiries, uh, who nevertheless never took out a patent on any of his life-saving inventions. So sometimes the mythology is that he represents almost in a libertarian spirit the can-do, you know, American upward mobility dream. And yet he would have, he would be appalled, I believe, at the notion that it was in any way disconnected from civic responsibility. This is a man who formed, you know, a, a, a library in Philadelphia, who started the University of Pennsylvania, who was into volunteer fire departments, who was into uh, police forces, into all sorts of civic improvements, created the first philosophical society in the United States held those great inventions without patent, um, you know, devoted his life to public service, which is 
a, you know, a much more complicated and to me much more interesting. So when you dive below the facts of something, another myth is that in order to make as important lightning experiments, we've reduced it to almost a comic scene of a of a kite being struck by lightning. That that's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to prove that in lightning are all the principles of electricity. And so his experiment is so significant that he was the most famous American in the world as a result of this discovery. He's the person who coined all of the various phrases that we still, in common usable language, attempt to understand the properties of electricity, the positive, the negative, the charge, the battery, the conductor. These are all Benjamin Franklin's terms. He is a Nobel caliber uh, scientist. Nobel prizes hadn't been invented, but as the scholar Joe Ellis says in our film, he's that caliber. He's, he's the Sir Isaac Newton of the 18th century for the world. And so you have a much more interesting thing when you when you penetrate. I I was when I was a little boy. I at twelve years old, I decided to be a filmmaker, and that meant in my mind that that was a Hollywood pursuit. And I loved Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and John Ford particularly. But as I grew older, I began to realize, you know, John Ford said when you when you when you're faced with the legend or the fact, print the legend. I went the other way. I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, which was then and still is now a, an amazing experimental uh, laboratory for understanding secondary education as not a transactional thing, but a transformational thing. And it permitted me to do what I've done, which is, I think, trying to examine and understand, not ignore the myth. You know, when, if somebody tell, if you told me you were 150, that would say more to me and I would understand more about you than if you told me your actual age. So it's hugely important to understand that mythology and how people have seen the past and how at the time myths are created, but it's important to obviously see beyond them. This series doesn't shy away from the complexity of uh, Benjamin Franklin, of course. I mean, I mean the fact that he owned and enslaved human beings. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, from your perspective as a contemporary documentarian, what are the best tactics to approaching like these more despicable attributes of historical figures who have often been considered sort of beyond reproach. Right. Well, this is the problem. The beyond reproach is where the mythology gets encrusted like barnacles on the keel of a boat. You know, it's 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 what you have to do. It's what I've always done for nearly 50 years of these pursuits. Uh, that is to say, the stories I've told in American history or the stories we've told. This is a blessedly not singular activity, but a collective, wonderful collaborative medium. And the we is not royal in any way, but but legitimate. I've worked with extraordinary writers and co-producers and co-directors and editors. And, and it's a family kind of business that we've been engaged in now for almost 50 years. The, the, the thing is that you just go in. To say complicated human being is to be redundant. That's the thing you just have to understand. In my editing room is a neon sign in cursive that says it's complicated. 
everybody wants to simplify everything. Everybody would love to just pigeonhole something into its category. It just makes things neater, particularly in a world where we're overwhelmed uh, with information, where a tsunami of stuff breaks over our heads every single day. And yet it is important to be rigorously identifying with the with the truth, what actually happened, what the facts are. And so, you know, Benjamin Franklin, I think, gets a pass by many people that go, well, he enslaved just household people. Well, you know, if you've got 300 on your plantation down south, that's bad. It's also bad to have three, right? It's just not a good thing. What's interesting about Benjamin Franklin, more interesting than this binary tendency we have on, off, good, bad, despicable, whatever we're saying, right, is that he was involved in lifelong self-knowledge and self-perfection so that by the end of his life, he's an abolitionist. He makes a proposal, the first proposal made to the United States government, only he could have made it. You know, begging that slavery be abolished. And of course, it's ignored in the Senate and doesn't pass the House. And, you know, and then many decades later, we fight a civil war and we're still arguing over not not slavery, but we're arguing over the 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 differences between people based not, as Dr. King said, on the content of their character, but on the color of their skin. So this is the American, one of the principal narratives of the American story, freedom, race, all of these things. What's so great about Benjamin Franklin is you have the best American writer of the 18th century, the first American humorist, the, you know, a successful businessman as an example of, you know, sort of rising up against significant obstacles. You have um, a person who is engaged in civic ideas and and, uh, civic engagement and and all sorts of civil discourse with his uh, fellow Philadelphians there. You have somebody who's a postmaster and a printer and a publisher. So he knows about what we'd call social media. He is social media of the day. He's a great, the greatest scientist of the 18th century. He's an editor of the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson's beautiful language, he edited and corrected a very important phrase, you know, that Jefferson wanted, we hold these truths to be sacred. And he said, uh uh-uh, self-evident. This is, this is the enlightenment, buddy. This is the age of reason. This is, like the sun coming up in the east. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, addition. And he left most of the rest of it alone because he understood how beautiful it actually was. He's the greatest diplomat in American history. No him, no victory in the revolution. And it's he's as important, if not more important, than George Washington in that regard. Um, he's also the person who came and helped forged the now, in retrospect, tragic consequences that created the Constitution. You know, it created the United States. That was a good thing. But it left in place slavery, and it counted the Southern slaves as three-fifths of a person to help boost their their legislative dominance for decades and decades. It was the Civil War happened because as Western expansion took place, that legislative dominance was uh, challenged for the first time. So it's and it's all over slavery. So it, this is, 
an amazing story. And then, you know, after the government has started, yes, he's in the last month of his life, he's engaged in, in abolitionism. It's well before the famous movements of abolitionism that we know in our histories from the 1820s through the Civil War. It's he's he's just he can be a way for us to understand all of those complexities, all of that undertow, all of those contradictions and find a way, if not to reconcile them, then to understand he is us. That is us embodied in much smaller forms uh, uh, than than him. You know, this is where mythology comes in. He's larger than life in a way. You know, it's 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 just a wonderful, wonderful story. He feels accessible to us, you know. He's got a sense of humor. And, and I mean, so right now we're in this moment where a lot of us are, well, you know, hopefully um, all of us are reframing our understanding of our country's um, history. And I'm wondering, I mean, how do you see this series sort of fitting into that? Like, what, why is it important for us to maybe reframe our understanding of Benjamin Franklin as more than just like a cultural symbol? Well, I think I don't sort of set myself up as sort of injecting into a particular moment. It took us almost five years to make this. I couldn't imagine the moment we're in now when we began it. Some films like the Vietnam War took 10 and a half years. You can imagine the kind of sea change. I'm, I'm interested in just telling complicated stories about my country. You know, I, in one other way to, um, to sort of consider this, Emily, is that, you know, I've spent 45 years making films about the U.S., but I've also spent those 45 years making films about us. That is to say, the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun, all of the intimacy of us, plus we and our, and all of the majesty, the complexity, the contradiction, and the controversy of the U.S. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. So when I've done this with every film. I've, I've made people more complicated. I, we've wanted it. We can't do it any other way. So that people who feel they know something go, wow, I had no idea. And that's wonderful. You know, our last film was on Muhammad Ali. Um, and, you know, as the film was approaching, critics were saying, why do we need another film on Muhammad Ali? And then they went, oh, <laughs> you know, they saw And this had new ways of understanding familiar things. You thought you knew this fight or this moment better, uh, and it's, it's actually more complicated. And as I said at the beginning, I believe much more interesting to tell us. There's something flat and simplistic about the mythology, the, the, the sort of statues that, that don't change expression. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized 
and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. In past interviews, you said that your goal as a filmmaker is to reach audiences in a subtle, like long-lasting way without using undue manipulation. And that seems like the antithesis of how a lot of popular media is created. Uh, yeah, could, could you talk about that? What does it mean to reach audiences like you do? Well, popular media is essentially a cudgel, right? Is it not? It sort of beats you over the head and yells at you and screams at you and tells you, you know, there's an enemy uh, amongst you. I mean, what I've learned is that in, in this years of, of talking about the U.S. and us, that there's only us. There's no them. And whenever anyone tells you there is them, just run away. So I think what we try to do is is um, tell those stories in such a way that they invite as many people in. You know, the novelist Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single point of person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And what we do right now is we argue all the time. And I'm interested in showing, oh, you know, we say I just finished the film that will be out in the fall on um, the U.S. and the Holocaust. And there's been um, lots of arguments over the decades about why we didn't bomb the rail lines at Auschwitz, right? And it's as if it, it has a right or a wrong answer. And our sort of contemplation of this, or scene on this, whatever you want to call it, shows it as a very complex thing that has to do with the passage of time and the distance from airfields and whether the rails could be replaced overnight, which they could, to spectacularly inaccurate bombing. So you might end up bombing as they did once, uh, Auschwitz uh, itself. Um, because they were trying to hit a, a, a factory five miles away and their bombs were off by five miles. Um, you know, you just dive deep into these subjects and you permit people to form their own, I won't say opinions, but come to their own conclusions in a way that tells them that we trust them to be intelligent. I think a good deal of media today assumes what we call the lowest common denominator, you know, just let's, let's go at the baseline of it. And we'd rather aim high, you know, we'd rather just aim high. Wow, absolutely. I, I'm I'm curious about your your process so far as I mean the, the, the sifting through, you know, history through all this enormous, all this information that makes up history, which doesn't occur in story form, doesn't really occur in narrative form. But I mean, part of your, your job, of course, is creating one of a type out of it. And I'm wondering, how do you even begin that process? Well, you just think about a simple question like, honey, how is your day? What is required out of that is a story. It doesn't begin, I back slowly down the driveway, avoiding the garbage can at the curb, unless somebody T-bones you, at which point that's exactly how you tell the story. What you do is you edit human experience. And so history is that. History is always changing. And here's an important thing. As the, as the 
um, late historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said, history is a conversation. There's nothing definitive, right, about what we do. We're, you know, we were able, say, in our Vietnam series to collect 23 of the best scholars about it, who each one of them had access to information none of the other 22 had and shared it with us. So this aggregated all of that. And for a few years now, it's been sort of the the kind of optimum public popular uh, version of it. But somebody will come along, new information will emerge, and the thing changes. And that's a really important thing to remember, that we have this thing, which is history, which is mostly made up of the word story plus high, which is a good way to begin the story. And um, it, it's, you could look at all of human experience as, as the evidence for it, as history, or you could see that history is an attempt by human beings to edit and come to terms with. And so each generation has a different perspective from which it sees past events. When I was a little boy, when the centennial of the Civil War came around in, in 1961, I was eight years old. It was a totally different civil war than the kind of civil war we seem to all have been hungry for when my series came out in 1990. It was just different. Earlier, they were interested in guns and regiments and arrows on a map. We had arrows on the map. We had regiments. We had guns. But it was a much more uh, deep thing. It, it, you know, the the there was more an interest in in uh, the African American experience and women's experience and what was happening in an intimate bottom up way, not just the top down one from those mythological generals on both sides who you know were later, you know, statues were made in their in their honor. You know, so it was it was a personal one, and it was about loss, a country losing what we now believe is 750,000 people, you know, way more than 2% of the population just doesn't get over that easy, you know. Wow. And I mean, your your films are known for giving a spotlight to those marginalized voices. I mean, voices of people of color, voices of, of women. And I'm wondering, how do you research these aspects of of human experience that weren't as thoroughly documented because the people who were experiencing them weren't privileged enough to be given the opportunity to document them. What a wonderful question. Uh, wonderful question, Emily. That, that, that's it. It's, it. It just makes our job that much more urgent to try to do that and to begin to extrapolate from oral histories, from the minimal amount of evidence, and from scholarship, which is doing that job every single day, uh, way ahead of us uh, to synthesize that thing. The important thing is to choose to include it, which we have done from the very, very beginning. The problem is people want this. I mean, people presume that the, that that others will want the simplified version and not the complex one. And we're, we're just there. So I'm happy to see that a lot of that is changing across the board, not just in documentaries, but in in uh, feature films as well, that you can have complex things that show other points of view. It's all important. And, and the other thing is that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't you just because you're kind of tired uh, and see the corrupt aspects of the top-down story of American history, of only of great men, of of, of the political military narrative, of of of, of administrations, presidential administrations punctuated by war. It, it it doesn't mean that all of that is bankrupt. You just need to include the bottom-up version. 
And that's what we've done, tried to do in every film that I know of that we work on. I mean, what better way to do the Dust Bowl than to ask the people now in their, then in their 80s and 90s, now mostly all past. Uh, this was a film that came out in 2012. Uh, what happened when they were kids? And, you know, you realize all of a sudden in the middle of interviewing an 85-year-old, you're not interviewing an 85-year-old. You're interviewing a nine-year-old. And they are remembering their parents' anxieties. And I bet you if you looked back to your childhood, the things that you remember are less the kind of pleasant things than the challenging things. And the moments when your parents were worried or upset rocks your world to a foundation. So imagine, you know, our textbooks say, oh, this is like a, a one big bad storm. And it's sometimes 10 big bad storms a year for 10 years. Right. All of a sudden, that's a different kind of dust bowl. And it's killing not only your crops, it's killing your cattle and it's killing your children. And when two men in their late 80s start talking about a little sister they had who died when she was two years old and they start crying themselves because they haven't brought that up, that helps you understand the dust bowl more than any sort of climatologist uh, tell you about it, more than some sort of uh, expert historian on on what it meant to the economy. All of that's important, and and we do include it, but we understand that that emotional archaeology, the the emotional truth, comes from the the aggregated attentions that we pay to that so-called bottom-up, so-called ordinary people. What we've discovered very early on is there are no ordinary people. Thank you so much, Ken. I, I know that's all the time we have, and it has been an absolute privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. You too, Emily. Take care. Today, WOUB's Emily Vota has been talking with award-winning documentarian Ken Burns about his new PBS series on Benjamin Franklin. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.